Thank you. Um, and I feel so at home here. It's so nice to um, just look forward to coming and seeing you. I know uh, many of you, I don't know some of you, but um, I want to take this opportunity if I can just to say a personal word. And I know many of you who have been praying for me and for my family, and the Lord has heard your prayers. Um, we're doing so well. And I'll tell you something that I learned. I almost shared this as a message for you tonight, but something I learned, um, you know, when you receive Christ as your Savior, He gives you eternal life. Eternal life is life that doesn't end, right? And not even death interrupts eternal life. That's your relationship with God. And my husband, when he was five years of age, he gave his heart to Christ. And so he had that personal relationship with God. He had eternal life. So when he um, moved to heaven on August 19th and he closed his eyes to this life, he opened them to the face of Jesus, that relationship with God wasn't interrupted. So he just went from faith to sight. What I want to tell you is that my, and this is something I discovered firsthand, my relationship with God wasn't interrupted either. And, and I know that's one, one reason is because you all have prayed and just carried us through in prayer. But actually, my relationship with the Lord, I'm still walking by faith, of course, but, but uh, it's, the relationship with Jesus is even sweeter. And, and I know that's an answer to prayer. So I just want to thank you for your prayers. Um, and I want to thank you for your prayers for my daddy. I'm sure if I stood around here and people came up and spoke to me, you'd say, how's your daddy? And um, he's 97, and actually he uh, has a good appetite. His vital signs are good. He's not mobile. He has, you know, he's confined to a bed or to a wheelchair. But he actually is doing very well. And last time we went to see him, his caregivers were telling us that he's stronger um, than he's been in a while. So they're just amazed at the fact that uh, he's doing as well as he is. And, and I believe God's hand is on him. He hasn't finished God's purpose for his life. And I personally believe it's somehow tied in with the return of Jesus. So if you hear that, um, yeah, I, I believe that. But, so if you hear that um, Billy Graham has moved to our father's house, you start looking up, okay? <laughs> Look up anyway, so I mean, don't wait till then. But. <laughs> but I want to thank Charlotte also for inviting me to come tonight. And this was going to be, I think, just a tea in your house, maybe, with the heads of the different seminaries and stuff, and then it turned into this. So you've invited a lot of guests to join us, and so um, I'll miss the one-on-one interaction with them, but I'm just thrilled to be here. And thank you for showing the video, and can I just tell you, before I share the message that will be on the Daniel Prayer, but that I feel like the Lord has, this is burning in my heart right now, so when I was trying to think of what I would share with you, it's, I'm just sharing what's on my heart. And, and I believe, um, I don't know if we'll see revival before the return of Jesus or not, actually, but I know that prayer and God's Word coupled together can trigger it. And I'll use Genesis 1, I didn't use that in the video, but Genesis 1, verse to, you know, verse 1, God created everything. Verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Verse 3, the, God's Word went forth and God said, let there be light. And there all the way through, every day, God's Word went forth and every day, whatever He said was so till in the end, through the preparation of the Spirit and the proclamation of the Word every day, in the end, planet Earth was a place that God said was good and a place He blessed and a place in which He could see His image reflected. And so I just... You know, he just put it on my heart. He just gave me the idea, I guess, or if you want to call it a vision. I didn't see things, but, you know, just burden on my heart that what if we could get people to pray, and pray, and I mean really pray, like we're going to talk about tonight, to really pray, and then what if we could get 
thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe could I say millions of people listening to God's word, the same portion of God's word on the same days. I loved um, the fact that you were saying how powerful it is just to read God's word together. What if people all over the nation, all over the world were listening to the word of God, the same portion every day, one hour a day for eight days? And that's what I want to try in August. And so we're launching the, the Daniel Prayer. The book will come out in May, which I didn't plan at that time, but... But it, God's timing is perfect, so that'll come out in May. I hope people will start to pray, and then in August we'll listen to God's word, and um, and let's just see what he'll do. And at least it's doing something, isn't it? Because I'm somebody, I just don't want to stand on the sidelines. I want to, I've told the Lord, I want to be on my feet with my sword in hand. I can be bloodied and battered and wounded, but I want to be standing with my sword in hand when he comes back. And I think that's any day, so... <laughs> So before we have the message, would you pray with me? So Father, we come before you now and we thank you. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for those who have made time on a Thursday night to get through that horrendous traffic and leave everything they had to leave in order to be here on time in their seats uh, because they want to hear from you. Lord, this is a, we're just too busy, we're too tired to have another meeting. We want to come and have an encounter with you tonight. So we're asking that you would speak to us, Lord. And as we choose to open our ears and listen, would you speak to us, whether it's in spite of the words or because of them, Lord, we want to hear you tonight. And we want this to make a difference in our lives. We're not just coming for inspiration or encouragement. We're coming, Lord, to receive what you have to say that we might leave this place and to be transformed in the way we pray. And I want to pray, especially for those in overflow who are watching on video, Lord, and I just thank them, thank you for moving them to come and, and be in that overflow room, Lord, so your spirit is not bound by time or space, and you can be as fully present in that room as you are here. So, dear Holy Spirit, would you pour yourself out upon us, not because we deserve it, but because we ask you to bless us you're the one from whom all blessings flow. If, if you don't bless us, we won't be blessed. So we're asking that you pour it out in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You know, our world is in a mess. And our nation is in a mess. And I wonder if we just pull that down personally to your world. Is your world in a mess? you have a relationship that's in a mess, or your church is in a mess, or your family's in a mess, or your neighborhood's in a mess, or your office is in a mess. And what can one person do? When we're faced with a mess, or a crisis, or a disaster, or just, you know, things unraveling, what can one person do? And sometimes we think one person just can't do anything, and so we just wring our hands, and we complain, and we gossip, and we just roll our eyes, and just like every night when I watch the news, <laughs> my son-in-law's getting sort of fed up with me. Every night I watch the news, and you roll your eyes, and you wring your hands, and you think, what a mess! <laughs> but there is something we can do. We can pray. And about 60 years before Jesus was born, there's a true story, according to the um, Jewish historian Josephus, and he tells a story that there was a drought in Jerusalem, and it was so severe that it was in danger of just cutting off a whole generation, and so the city elders called for Hani, and Hani was known as the rainmaker, so they asked him to come out and pray for rain. So Hani came outside the city, and he prayed for rain, and nothing happened. 
So Hani took his staff and he drew a big circle around himself. Then he got down on his knees and on his face inside that circle and he prayed for rain. He said, God, send the rain. And so while he prayed, there was a sprinkling, you know, just a light sort of a drizzle. And he said, Lord, not for that rain have I prayed. I'm praying for rain that will just be an outpouring of rain. So as he prayed, it was a deluge, like what we would call a gully washer. And he said, Lord, not for that kind of rain. I want a slow, steady rain that will fill up the cisterns and the reservoirs and the creeks and it will end this drought. And while Hani prayed, there was that slow, steady drizzle and, and, slow, and, and the downpour. And anyway, the drought was ended and the streams were filled up in the reservoirs because Hani had said, Lord, I'm going to stay in this circle and I'm going to pray until you send the rain. And God answered his prayer. And my challenge to you tonight, I want you to draw a circle. And I don't mean literally, all right? So please don't anybody think I've gone over the edge. And... <laughs> But to draw a circle, and by that I mean wrap your mind around your sphere of influence. If it's your family, if it's your neighborhood, if it's your office, if it's your church, if it's your city, whether you're from Wake Forest or Raleigh or Cary or Garner or Apex or Fuquay or Roseville or I'm afraid to start naming them, I'll leave somebody out, but you know what I mean, just your neighborhood and this state and this nation just... You decide what's in your circle. And I was thinking as I was sitting there praying, I want to be in your circle, all right? So (laughs) pray for me. Put me in your circle. So just whoever's in your circle. And then you get in your circle, and you're wrapping your heart and your mind around it. And you're saying, God, I will not let you go. Like Jacob did when he put his arms of faith around, you know, that man in the Jappic River. And he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And we put our arms of faith around God and we say, God, we won't let you go until you bless those who are in my circle. Yesterday, as the storms were coming, I can tell you I was on my face, back in my bedroom, drawing a circle. And what I felt God put on my heart was Wake County. And I was praying for Wake County. Don't let anybody be hurt. Don't let anybody die. And the Lord was gracious and he just extended that to all of North Carolina and people died south of us and north of us and... And I'm sorry, and I, you know, we pray for them. But that's what I'm talking about. Getting serious about drawing your circle and asking God to bless all that's within your circle. The prophet Daniel, he didn't draw a circle. He didn't say he drew a circle, but in Daniel chapter 9, that's what he was doing. He was drawing a circle, and he gives us a pattern for prayer in our circle that I want to share with you tonight. And there are six aspects to his pattern that I'll give you, and then we're going to go through one by one. If you brought your Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to read the passage because of time, but I will go phrase by phrase and verse by verse. So if you have it on your smartphone, if you have it on your hard copy, if you have it on your tablet, however you use your Bible today, whatever is most convenient. But Daniel chapter 9, and there are six aspects to his prayer. And the first is that Daniel prayed... He w- because he was compelled to pray. He prayed because he was centered in prayer. He prayed confident in prayer. He prayed with contrition. He was contrite in prayer. He prayed with clarity, and he prayed until it was confirmed. So that's where we're going. So first of all, I want you to see that he prayed under compulsion. He was compelled to pray. The first verse says that it was in the year of Darius the Mede, and it just gives us insight. We read between the lines. And Daniel was in captivity in Babylon. And I know you know the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. 
when they'd had, you know, they were on like a roller coaster spiritually. They would go up with a good king and down with a bad king and up with a good king and down with a bad king until finally they had bad king after bad king and they were defiant, they were rebellious and God sent a messenger after messenger and they defied God and they disobeyed God and finally God had enough and so he sent in the Babylonians and the Babylonians had taken them all into captivity and Daniel was one that, one of the first ones the Babylonians took into captivity and so his world... His nation of Judah was in a mess. They were being held captive by the enemy 800 miles east. They were separated from their foundation of faith, if you want to put it that way. They were separated from God's place of blessing. They weren't right with God. And so Daniel felt compelled by the problems in his world. So what are the problems in your world? Your family, your church, your neighborhood, in this state, in this nation, we're hearing of problem after problem after problem after problem. <laughs> and so many problems. And do you ever, instead of just wringing your hands and rolling around, you feel compelled to pray. And Daniel was compelled by the problems in his world, but he was also compelled by the promises in God's word. And I love it, it says in verse 2, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he's in his 80s. And he's still reading his Bible. I'll never forget the vision of my mother in her 80s, sitting on her bed, macular generation. She couldn't read, so her secretary had typed out the scriptures that she was memorizing in two-inch high letters. So maybe she'd get four words on a page, and she had these big black notebooks on her bed, still memorizing the Word of God in her 80s when she could barely do anything else. I remember talking to Miss Johnson, who founded Bible Study Fellowship, about six weeks before she moved to our father's house, and... She told me she was reading about Jacob and she was learning something and I, I was so caught by the fact that she was still reading her Bible. This is the one that founded Bible Study Fellowship, wrote the notes and the questions and all that and she's still reading her Bible, learning something new from it that I've forgotten what she was learning. <laughs> and then I just felt too embarrassed to ask her, Miss Johnson, would you repeat that? You know, but, but I remember being so amazed that she was struggling with cancer and pain, still reading her Bible, still learning from it. And Daniel in his 80s, he's still reading his Bible, to put it in our terms. Came across prophet of Jer prophecy of Jeremiah. And as he's reading Jeremiah, I'm going to read you these verses, and I'm assuming this is what he was reading. There's another portion in Jeremiah, it might have been, but Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And Daniel came across that promise in 70 years. There'd be 70 years in captivity in Babylon. After 70 years, God would bring them back to captivity, but they would have to seek him and ask him and plead with him. And so Daniel is reading this, and then he must have all of a sudden thought, and he started to connect the dots, and his mind was beginning to whirl because, let's see, he had been in captivity for 67 years. That meant, if God was counting from the first deportation, that meant in three years, God would bring these people back out of captivity, restore them to the place of blessing, restore them to a right relationship with him, restore them to their foundation of faith in him, but who was praying? God said he would do it, but 
He was waiting to be asked. Ezekiel 37, 36, God says, I have this and this and this and this I want to do for Israel, but I have yet to be inquired of. My mother said, if there are any tears in heaven, it's going to be for all the answers to prayer nobody ever bothered to ask. It's like Jesus walking on the water. Remember when the disciples were in the boat and he made to pass by? Have you thought about that? Why would he, you know, make to, like to pass by? Because he was waiting for them to call on him. And Daniel, as he's reading God's word, he comes across this promise and he lays claim to it. And he begins to pray, in a sense, God's word back to him. God, you promised in 70 years you'd bring us back. That's in three years. You said if we seek you, we'll find you and you're going to fulfill your promise. So the Daniel prayer is taking God's word and praying it back to him. It's what we call reverse thunder, where you take a promise from God and you pray it back to him. You hold him to his word. Several years ago, I knew I'd be staying home to take care of my husband and I have three granddaughters, and so I had a few trips left, and so I thought, I just want to take each one of my granddaughters on a trip. So as it turned out, I took my oldest one to Phoenix, and that was her special trip, and then somebody invited me to California. I took my middle one to California, and we went, but then I didn't have any more trips. But my youngest granddaughter, who then was seven or eight, she says, Mimi, I want to go on a trip. And I said, well, one day you can't. No, Mimi, I want to go on a trip. And I said, well, you're just a little young now, and I don't have any trips. But Mimi, I really want to go on a trip. And she kept, you know, holding my hand, would go somewhere, and she'd, I'd feel a little hand. Mimi, when are we going to go on a trip? So finally, I said, all right, the next trip I go on, you can go with me. And I knew I didn't have any more trips planned. You know, I was going to be staying home with Danny. <laughs> well, would you believe, like in about six weeks' time, I had an invitation to go to Boston, and it was one that I couldn't turn down. It was my husband's brother, actually. He pastors a big church in downtown Boston. It was their 175th anniversary. It's, it's an amazing church, but anyway. And I was to give the anniversary message, and so I accepted and felt the little hand, Mimi, you know. I want to go on a trip. And I said, you're just too young. I can't take, but Mimi, you said the next trip you go on, you'll take me. And I took Riggin to Boston. Do you see the difference? When you, when you say, God, I want this, I want you to bless America. I want you to bless my family. I want you to save my son. I want you to reconcile that relationship. There's a difference when you say, God, you said, if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves, pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, then you said you'd forgive us and you'd hear our prayer and you'd bless our land. Pray God's word back to him. He loves to be held according to his word. So Daniel felt compelled to pray by the problems he saw in his world, and he linked that to a promise from God's word, and he's going to hold God to it. So I don't know what the problems are in your world, but whatever they are, would you ask God to give you a promise to match them? And then you start praying that promise back to him. I'll tell you one that I'm claiming. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to receive you to myself. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You said you'd come back. You said you would come and take us to be with yourself. You said when the nation of Israel is reborn and the fig tree puts forth leaves, you said... 
The generation that sees that is the last generation. You said when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then I'm coming, Lord. You said, so come, Lord Jesus. Clean up this mess. (laughs) I do believe he's the only one that can do it. So Daniel was compelled. And then Daniel was centered in prayer. And he just focused right in, in prayer. And when I'm from Western North Carolina, you know, when we would go on a long hike, we'd take a compass. And before you went on the hike, you'd make sure the needle and the compass pointed north. So if you got caught in a laurel thicket, you could just take out your compass. You knew the needle was pointing north, and you could just work your way out of the laurel thicket. And, and centering down in prayer is like setting your spiritual compass so that you know which direction you're going. And he was centered down in prayer. He centered privately. It says in verse 3, he turned to the Lord God. And when he turned to the Lord God, he was turning away from everything else. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your closet. And I'll tell you something. You can pray anytime, anywhere, any place. Praise God, he's available 24-7, right? We all know that. But this kind of prayer requires privacy. No distractions, getting alone with God, going into your closets. And Daniel centered in privately, and he centered in sincerely. He went, he fasted. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you fast, that's not an option, not for this kind of prayer. And fasting isn't just going without food. Fasting is going without anything and everything in order to make time to get alone and pray. So it's going without email and surfing the internet and television and reading and working and talking and ministry and shopping and housework. I love to fast from housework. And, <laughs> and we just turn away from everything in order to turn to the Lord God privately and sincerely and desperately. It said he dressed in sackcloth. And sackcloth would be outward evidence of the inward necessity. God, if you don't get us out of this mess, we're not going to get out. If you don't save us, we won't be saved. If you don't deliver us from the judgment that's coming, we're not going to be delivered. You're our only hope. And he turned to God in desperation, dressed in sackcloth, and then he turned to God humbly when he smeared himself with ashes Basically saying, God, without you, I can't do anything. With, I am nothing. I can do nothing. In me is no good thing. And he centers down on God. Have you set your compass? Would you make time when you draw your circle and you're compelled by the problems within your circle and you claiming promises from the word? And then would you turn away from everything and turn to God with a sense of desperation? You know, we, we seem to think, well, we'll pray while we go to our banker. We pray while we talk to our mother. We'll pray while we, you know, get involved in issues today. And yes, we should get involved. And yes, we should talk to our banker. And yes, we should talk to our... But not as our hope. Not as our answer. And I wonder if that's why God lets us have problems. If that's why he lets us get desperate until all we have is him. 
And I think all we have is him. It's just sometimes we don't know that, do we? And so he gets us to the point that we know that. And I think we're getting to that point in this nation. So center down in prayer. When do you fast? You have a private place. It's hard to pray when people are moving around in the house, isn't it? So you may have to get up early before they all move around. Stay up later, you know, after they've all gone to bed. When they've all left the house and you have a few minutes to yourself. Turn away from everything to turn to him in desperation and humility. David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. God hears you. And he has so many things he would give you and me. Blessings. And I believe, Joel chapter 2 says, if we rend our hearts and not our garments, and we return to the Lord, who knows? But that he would return to us. And instead of judging us, would leave behind the blessing. But we have to turn to him and turn away from everything else and seek him with all of our hearts. Daniel felt compelled to pray. He centered down in prayer and then he prayed with confidence. In verse 4, he said, I turn to the Lord my God. Catch that pronoun? God was his God. And Daniel was confident of a covenant relationship with God. He had entered into a covenant with God. I'm assuming as he was a young person growing up in Jerusalem, and in that day it would have been through the sacrificial system. And he made a covenant with God, and he was a Jewish young boy, and so he had entered into that covenant, and God was his God, and he belonged to God. You and I, from a New Testament perspective, we enter into the covenant with God when we come by faith to the cross, and we confess that we're sinners. And doesn't, well, it does mean you confess specific sins. You know, your anger, your jealousy, your meanness, your selfishness, your rudeness, your bitterness, your unforget, whatever the sin is. Yes, you confess your specific sins, but it's more than that. It means that you confess that you have a sin nature. We're, we were born in sin. So we're born, if you're given a choice, you will choose to be selfish. You want whatever that is for yourself. And, and if you're given the choice, you'll lose your temper when somebody does that. Or you're given the choice, you'll lie to get out of it. When the pressure comes on, our sin nature comes out. We're sinners. All of us, the Bible says, every single one of us was born in sin. We're all sinners before a holy God. And we come by faith to the cross and we just tell God, I'm a sinner. I've sinned specifically and my nature is a sin and I'm sorry. And I believe, dear God, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross as your sacrifice for my sin. If nobody else was a sinner and needed a Savior, I believe you would have sent Jesus just for me. And I believe Jesus died for me. And I'm asking you, God, to forgive me based on his death. I believe he made atonement for my sin. I'm asking you to cleanse me with his blood. Give me eternal life, that relationship that will never end. Come into my heart. I give you the authority to rule my life. From now on, I'll live for you. When you do that, you enter into a covenant relationship with God so that 
you belong to him. Jesus said you're born again into his family. You're God's child, but listen to me. God is your God. He belongs to you. So may I ask you, when did you enter into the covenant relationship with God? Can you honestly say, God is my God? And would he agree? And if you can't remember a time that you entered into a covenant relationship with him, can you remember? Let me just ask you. Do you remember a point in time when you came by faith to the cross, however that was, maybe it was in church somebody was preaching, maybe you heard something on the radio, maybe somebody shared the gospel with you, maybe it was at your mother's knee when you were a child, but you heard the gospel, you heard that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that when you put your faith in him you would not perish, separated from him and go to hell when you die, you would be saved and you would have everlasting life and he'd forgive you of your sin and he'd give you peace and joy and a meaning to life and a purpose to live for and open heaven's door for you when the moment came and when did you enter into that covenant relationship with him? If you can't remember ever having done that, how do you know you have? And I find a lot of people in our part of the world, southeastern part of the United States where there's a church on every street corner and you know it's part of our culture to go to church and call ourselves a Christian and don't make an assumption that you belong to God just because you go to church, you're a church member, you've been baptized, you take communion, you know the scriptures, you can pray in public, you know. You have to enter into a covenant with God. And Jesus said at that last supper, do you remember when he passed out the wine and the bread, and he said, this is the blood of my new covenants. You have to come to the cross and claim the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for your sin. Thank God for cleansing you and for the forgiveness he offers only through Jesus. There's no other way. Can I just tell you that? It's not politically correct, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, like no one. No one can come into a right relationship with the Father. No one can go to heaven. No one can have their sins forgiven. No one can come into God's family unless they come through me, Jesus said. And I'm paraphrasing here. So make sure and if you say, Ann, every time somebody like you says something like this, I just pray the prayer all over again. I've prayed that prayer so many times, and I just, you know. <laughs> so can I say something? I wonder if you've ever prayed it once by faith. Because faith says, God, you said, if I confess my sin, you'll forgive me. So faith says, I'm asking you to forgive me, and therefore, based on your word, I believe you have. Thank you. I'm forgiven. And faith says, God, you said if I ask you for eternal life, you'll give me eternal life. I've asked you, so I believe I've received it. Thank you. And faith says, you've said if I open up my heart and I invite you to come in, you will come in. You'll have fellowship with me. I've opened up my heart. I've invited you to come in. So faith says, God, thank you. You now live inside of me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? And then you just get on with the Christian life. You don't keep doubting your salvation. Those of us who have entered into that covenant relationship, can I just tell you, we know that we know that we know. I can't remember the last time I doubted I was God's child. I made that decision when I was eight or nine. It was on a good Friday. I can't remember the year, but I remember kneeling down beside my bed in my room upstairs at Daddy's house and going through what I just shared with you, confessing my sin, asking God to forgive me, inviting Jesus to come into my heart. Because God doesn't have any grandchildren. 
Just because I'm Billy Graham's daughter, that doesn't mean I have a covenant relationship with God. I had to enter into that covenant myself on my own, and so do you. Daniel had done that. He had a covenant relationship with God. And therefore, he was confident in God. Confident in God's covenant, confident in God's character. And people today say, you know, well, I don't think God is like that. And my God would never do that. And my God loves everybody. He'll take everybody to be with him. And, you know, and everybody has their own God. And some people call him Allah. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Confucius. Some people maybe call him Jehovah. Maybe they call him Muhammad. Maybe they call him Jesus. Daniel knew his God. And God is exactly the way he's revealed in his word. Okay? He's exactly the way he's revealed in Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. But God reveals himself in this book. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the revelation of God. It's his word, but it's, he's revealing himself. And Daniel knows his God. So Daniel knows the character of God, his faithfulness. In verse 4, he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Daniel knew the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant of love with Daniel. So I'll just quickly go through his testimony. Chapter 1, do you remember when he came enslaved to Babylon? He was about 15 years of age. They changed his name so that his name now honored a pagan god. I'm expecting that they, I expect they emasculated him because his overseer, his immediate supervisor was the chief of the eunuchs. And then they said he would have to eat food that came from the king's table, meaning it had first been offered to idols, meaning that every time he ate a bite, he would be giving tribute to a pagan god. So Daniel, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't prevent his name from being changed. He couldn't prevent what they did to him physically, but he wasn't about to eat food that was offered to an idol and give tribute to an idol. So he said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, just give me a test. You know, put me on water and vegetables and fruit for 10 days. And so they did. And after 10 days, he was healthier and smarter than all those who had compromised. Because God is faithful. And in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. He woke up. He was very disturbed. So he called for the wise men. And he said, I want you to not just interpret the dream, but tell me what the dream was because I've forgotten it. And the wise men said, nobody can do that. And he said, well, you're good for nothing. And he ordered them all killed. And Daniel was, at that point, one of the wise men. So he had just gotten a death sentence. So he said, whoa, you know, give me a, give me a night. So Daniel, I, I wonder, did he go to sleep? But he, when he woke up the next morning or the next morning, God had given him the dream and the interpretation. Because God is faithful. And in chapter 3, his three friends out on the plain of Shinar refused to bow down to the statue of gold, and so they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and the Son of God shows up. Not a hair on their heads was singed because God is faithful. And in chapter 5, Daniel goes into that feast of Belshazzar, who I'm guessing is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He was a spoiled brat, and they're in this big drunken orgy, and... In the middle of the drunken feet, they brought out the vessels dedicated to the glory of God in the temple in Jerusalem, and they were toasting their pagan gods with them. And there's this hand that begins writing on the wall, you know? And they go stone cold sober, and somebody calls for Daniel, and Daniel tells Belshazzar to his face this night, your life will be required of you. And that night, the Medes and Persians slipped under the gate, and they, they took Belshazzar's life because God is faithful. 
in chapter 6, the next king, Darius, egomaniac. He was convinced by the enemies of Daniel to declare that people could only pray to him. <laughs> and he signed that into law. And Daniel opened his window to Jerusalem like he did three times a day, got on his knees, prayed, was arrested, thrown to the lion's den. Next morning, the king, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you? Oh, yes. He sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths because God is faithful. Confident in the faithfulness of God by his experience. What experiences have you had of God's faithfulness? I was encouraging somebody this past week who's just lost his wife to just write down the blessings of God. Write down every day, at least write down one. In what way has God been faithful to you? And if you're new in your faith or maybe you just can't think of, you know, use the experiences of those in Scripture to build your faith on. The experiences of Daniel or David or Elijah or Peter or Paul or Mary. And you just, their God is our God. The same God yesterday, today, and forever. So... Ask God then to give you experiences of his faithfulness to, I wish I had time to tell you, of God's faithfulness to me. Just since this summer, on August 17th, when I found my husband unresponsive in the pool at home, and after getting over that horrific shock, I could tell you thing after thing after thing, God's faithfulness. You know, I have not spent one night by myself to this day I have had people bless me. I've had people, you know, I know um, when God puts something on your heart like that to do for somebody, do it because you have no idea at that moment what it means to that person. It can be a text. It can be a phone call. It can be a note. It can be just a flower left on the doorstep. It can, you know, simple little things, but it just conveys God's faithfulness to carry you through something that you wouldn't have thought you could do. God is faithful. He will be faithful to you. You know how come I know that? Because he is faithful. He can't be less than himself, can he? And he is faithful. Daniel was confident of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness. In verse 7, Lord, you are righteous. You do the right thing. Think about it. When finally, Judah had so rebelled against God that he sent in the, the Babylonians and... It took him 22 years because God was so patient. He didn't want any to perish. You know he was just wanting Judah to repent and he would have stayed his hand of judgment. When she refused and she became belligerent and defiant, he sent in the Babylonians. They tore down the walls of the city. They burned the city with fire and they took Solomon's glorious temple and they leveled it and they took all the treasures back to Babylon and the people they didn't slaughter in the streets, they took off into captivity. And Daniel is saying, God... You've done the right thing. Today, you talk about judgments, people get so offended. And that's even within the church. Don't talk like that. I remember I was on a national television talk show, and it was after 9-11. And I was saying some pretty strong things, and the talk show host said, Ann, don't say that. You're an angel. God is loving and kind, and don't say that. God is loving and kind. Praise God he's loving and kind. But he's also righteous. He does the right thing. And that's how come I know that I know 
America is coming under his judgment. Can I just say that? Because God is righteous. And you cannot shake your fist in his face and do the things we're doing with impunity. And because he hasn't judged us yet, we think, I think it's begun, but we mistake his patience, excuse me, his patience for toleration. And we think because he hasn't just opened up the ground and swallowed somebody that, you know, he's just not paying attention. But if you start watching, judgment, can I just say judgment is not necessarily opening up the ground and swallowing somebody or striking them with lightning. Or Judgment is God backing away, removing his hand of protection and his hand of blessing and his hand of favor and just backing away and letting us have our own way, just giving us over to ourselves. That's what's happening today. And God, do we... Do we have the courage, the honesty, the integrity to say, God, you're doing the right thing? My mother said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> God is righteous. But listen to me, verse 9, Daniel was confident of his goodness. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. So Daniel knew the righteousness of God required judgment. God is just. He can't be less than himself, so he has to judge sin. But because he's merciful and kind and good, he forgives us when we come to him. He has the, the best example is the cross, isn't it? That at the cross, his righteousness demands judgment for our sin, but his goodness caused him to step in and take the judgment for us. You see? God is righteous, but he's good. All the time. So I don't care what you've done. You yourself may be quaking in your seat right now because of what you've done and you're scared to death of the judgment of God. Listen to me. You just run to him. He is merciful. He's forgiving. You come to him and you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will make it right. He'll put his arms around you. He can turn the mess in your life into something that will be a blessing. He can help redeem it. But if you don't, he can get very firm. God is faithful. He's righteous. He's good. Verse 15 Daniel was confident of his greatness. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. In other words, God, if you could move the heart of Pharaoh to let your people go, you can move the heart of this Persian emperor to let your people go. Because God is a great God. And if God could save Noah from his judgment in the flood, if he could save the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, if he could save them from Pharaoh's pursuing army and open the Red Sea and bring them through, if he could save them in the wilderness from all the Perizzites and Ammonites and Edomites and, you know, all the ites, <laughs> all those enemies, bring them into the promised land, give them victory after victory after victory, if he could raise Jesus from the dead and deliver us from judgment once and for all, he can deliver his people today. The people in your circle, the people in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood, in this city, in this state, this nation, 
It's not too late or I wouldn't be up here, I don't think. I wouldn't be coming up with this book and the things I'm doing. I believe God is still calling out to us. Turn to me, turn to me, turn to me, and I'll turn to you. It's not too late. But I believe we're on the brink and we're, we're over into the abyss. And we're going to reach that tipping point where it will be too late. And we'll be like Jeremiah crying as we watch our nation destroy itself. And Jeremiah had the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to understand that in back of the Babylonians was God. If you'd read the newspaper in that day, I doubt it would have said that. You read the newspaper today, it talks about ISIS. It talks about record-breaking storms. It talks about slashings, 567 in New York City. As I understand it, just since this year. It talks about murders and polarization and rioting in the streets. and They don't have the eyes to see. And back of it is a righteous, holy God who's just backing away and giving us over to ourselves at this judgment. So God is a great God. Listen to him. If he can deliver the Jews from Egypt, and if he can deliver the Jews, as he did eventually from Persia, he can deliver your loved one. He can deliver our nation. But we need to turn to him, get serious about praying. Daniel not only was confident in God, but now we see him just pouring out his heart in confession of sin, deeply contrite. And as he goes through this prayer, and I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but when you, I want you to go back home tonight and read through this prayer. It's really amazing. He uses plural pronouns all the way through it. So I'll give you an example in verse 5. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. And you see the we, our. He was so identifying with the sin of his people that he took it on himself as though it was his own. And Daniel was an exemplary person. You read about his life. There is not a more outstanding character than Daniel in all the Old Testament. But he's saying our sin, our rebellion, our disobedience, In other words, he stopped pointing the finger at them. He stopped blaming others. And he took on the sin of his people as though it were his own. And I'm speaking to myself. It's hard to do, isn't it? Because we do see them as the problem. (laughs) And they are. But we're all sinners, aren't we? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come humbly in need of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace so we can say our sin and our rebellion, our need of you. Oh, dear God, we need you. And so he confessed our sin. When is the last time you confessed your sin? You wait until your church has communion and then you just try to, you know, God forgive me my many sins. 
Or every day, do you keep short accounts? God, I'm so sorry I was impatient. Oh, I'm so sorry for that thought that I didn't just let pass through my mind, but I, I dwelt on it. You know, I really had a conversation with that person in my mind. And... <laughs> and the stomach ache that's really coming from bitterness and unforgiveness and headaches that come from anger and, I mean, you know, confess your sin every day. When you've entered into that covenant relationship with God and you've come to the cross, you're forgiven. You know that of all of your sin, past, present, and future. Praise God. He will never hold you accountable for the guilt of your sin ever again. You know that? It's all under the blood of Jesus. When he said it's finished, he meant it. It's finished. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're clothed in his righteousness. So why do we come back to the cross every day to confess our sin? In order to just keep our fellowship with God sweet to make sure there's no barriers between him and us, to confess our sins so that there's nothing that's clogging the flow of his Holy Spirit in us and through us so that we can be that channel of blessing to other people. Confess your sin. And I found myself that that takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to see myself as God sees me because, you know, I pretend about myself. And I think I'm, you know, pretty good and I'm a little bit better than that person, not as bad as that person. And God showed me that several years ago that sin in my life I didn't even know was there and conviction set in and it took enormous courage to look at myself as he sees me and confess it using the same labels for the sin that he uses. Confess your sin. And he confessed our sin and our shame. In verse 6 and 8, he says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to all the people of the land. O Lord, we are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. And God had sent a messenger after messenger. He sent Jeremiah, who spoke with tears, and sent Ezekiel, who spoke with visions, and Amos, who spoke with logic, and Isaiah, who spoke with eloquence, and messenger. And those were great prophets. I mean, they had the best. And they were cruising through the land, speaking to the people and preaching, and, and their messages were God's word. I mean, these were the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, one after another. And the people refused to listen. They turned deaf ears. They rebelled against God. And that's a shame. And I think in this part of the country, we have some great preachers. And we have some maybe not so good, but you know. You can turn on television, you can get some good ones, not so good ones, but we've got a lot of variety, a lot of opportunity. We have great churches almost on every street corner. We have Bibles in the bookstores, and we have Bibles in our homes, and we have a multitude of translations, and we have Bible studies in this area. So many Bible studies, praise God for them. And we're disobedient, and we don't read our Bibles, and we're not living for... That's a shame, because we know better. And I think of America, and we're different from other nations. You know that. They're trying to tell us that we're not, but we are. And the politically correct people don't want to say this, but our nation was founded on faith in God. And our first president, George Washington, took the Continental Congress, and the first act was to get on his knees and dedicate this nation to the glory of God. And look how God has blessed us. And he's given us his favor and prosperity and we're shaking our fist in his face and stripping the name of his son from everything that's public 
and saying we can't take the Bible here, we can't say this there, and just, that's a shame. Because we know better. And that leads to scorn. In verse 16, your people are an object of scorn. People of the world would look at Jerusalem and the walls were broken down and the city was burned and the temple was no more and they would say, if your God is God, I don't want to know him. If America's God is God, we don't want to know him. You know, that was something that came after that tsunami. Was it in Japan, the earthquake? And after the things that have happened here and the looting and the stealing and then in Japan, after that, everybody queued up, everybody helping each other and think, why would the Japanese want America's God when America's people behave so lawlessly? And I don't want to... I'm using America because it's actually burning in my heart right now, but within your circle. I remember once being called in to mediate between a husband and wife. And the wife was a believer and the husband was not. And the wife had behaved in a very wrong way. She had wronged her husband. And I remember the husband going out the kitchen, slamming the door, screaming at her, if you're a Christian, I never want to know your Christ. I remember hearing my daddy say that he wanted God to take his life before that would ever be said of him. Daniel's confessing the sin and shame and scorn of his people as though it was his own. Praying with deep contrition. There's just no room for pride, no room for judgmentalness, no room for self-righteousness. We just come before God. Oh, God, please. We're sinners. We're ashamed. We haven't lived rightly before you. People see us, and we know we have not been a witness like we should have been. Oh, God, please, we come to you anyway, pleading your mercy and your forgiveness. And Daniel was very clear about what he was asking God. In verse 16, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger from Jerusalem. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. This is verse 19. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city bears your name. So I want you to understand the basic problem in Judah was not the fact she was in captivity in Babylon. The basic problem in Judah was not that she'd left her foundation of faith. The basic problem in Judah was not that she was enslaved to the Babylonians. The basic problem in Judah was sin. And in America, the basic problem in our nation is not political. Now that's a problem, but it's not the basic problem, and it's not the economy, and it's not immigration, and it's not, you know, technology, it's not the military, it's not... The basic problem in America is sin. So when we pray, we're not praying. We can pray for those problems. Yes, we can. But bottom line, we're saying, oh God, would you hear our prayer? Would you forgive our sin? We want to stand in the gap for our people. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, act. Oh, Lord, forgive. Why? For the glory of your name. Bottom line, we're not just wanting what we want because we want an easier life. We want it to be more peaceful. We want our economy to go up so we can have more money to spend on ourselves. We're not, you know, bottom line, for the glory of your name. 
as we pray your promise back to you, if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, and God, we've done that. And we've spent time turning from our wicked ways. We've confessed our sin and we're willing to repent and turn away from it. And therefore, God, you've said you would hear our prayer and you'd forgive our sin and you'd heal our land. And God, when you do, for the glory of your name, everybody will know. It wasn't a political party. It wasn't a new president. It wasn't, you know, what is just God pouring out his spirit on his people, bringing us what I pray would be revival and outpouring of freshness to our faith that would be contagious, <laughs> flow in us and through us to our land. And God would be glorified. And the name of Jesus would be exalted. Bottom line, our prayer is for the glory of God. So I'm going to tell you, if he's glorified through judgment, if he's glorified through drawing a red line, and when God draws a red line, he doesn't vacillate. And he draws a red line and we cross it. And we pass the tipping points. He's glorified. Even in his judgment. So, Daniel's prayer was God, would you hear my prayer? Would you forgive our sin? Would you hear? Would you act? Would you restore us to the place of blessing? Would you restore us in a right relationship with yourself? Oh God, would you deliver us from judgment? Would you take us back home? Daniel, in a sense, hunkered down in his circle, praying for his people. He prayed until his prayer was confirmed, and he didn't have long to pray because his prayer was answered immediately. In verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, verse 21, while I was still, in, while he was praying, the answer came to him. Now sometimes God answers that quickly and sometimes he doesn't. The next chapter he doesn't answer Daniel that quickly, but in this case he answered, and I believe he will answer you and me in the same way, and the, the way he answered Daniel immediately, he encouraged him. And the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Daniel, your prayer has been heard. You're highly esteemed. If that's the only answer I ever got to my prayer, it would be enough, wouldn't it be? And heaven has heard your prayer. You're highly esteemed. Listen to me. Someone who stands in the gap for your nation, someone who intercedes for those within your circle, is someone who's highly esteemed in heaven. Daniel's prayer was answered immediately through the encouragement and then through, through enlightenment when the angel said to him, in verse 22, I've come to give you insight and understanding. So while Daniel was praying, he received insight and understanding. And this is a point that maybe is just for one person here tonight, but it's blessed me. You don't have to know everything when you start to pray. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to just pray so specific that, oh my goodness, I didn't pray for that, so now God won't answer it that way. Well, you, you just start to pray. And as you pray, God will give you insight and understanding as to how to pray. 
He can bring a verse to mind. He can bring a phrase to mind. He can bring a thought to mind. He can bring an idea to mind. And as you pray, he gives you insight and understanding. When I was a girl growing up, I would get my daddy's big binoculars, and I wanted to see a little bird, the first little bird in the summertime, indigo bunning, that would come out and sit on the maple tree in the front yard. And, and I'd take those big binoculars, and when I looked through the binoculars, everything was a blur. You know, the mountains, the bird, the trees, just... And then I would move that little wheel in the middle, and, and it would come into focus. And as I looked through the binoculars, and I turned that little wheel, it would come into focus, and I could see the little indigo bunning. And when you pray, and you're praying for the nation, you're praying for our state, you're praying for our city, you're praying for those in your circle, and it's all a blur. And as you pray, it's like the focus gets sharper and sharper, and God just brings you right down to what he would have you pray for. So while he was praying, he received insight and understanding. So his prayer was answered immediately. And it was answered ultimately. I love this. Verse 21 The angel came to him at the time of the evening sacrifice. There hadn't been a sacrifice in Jerusalem for 47 years. So why in the world would Daniel be mindful of the fact that this answer to prayer was coming at the time of the evening sacrifice? And I think God is very intentional. You know, he doesn't do things whimsically or by mistake. He's very intentional. And I think he was giving Daniel a very subtle message. Daniel, the answer to your prayer that that I would forgive the sin of your people and that I would save you from judgment. That's going to come at the time of the evening sacrifice, about 450 years from now, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when the Lamb of God will be sacrificed on the altar of wood and take my judgment once and for all, and your people will be set free. Prayer answered ultimately. Our prayer ultimately is answered at the cross, isn't it? Jesus is the answer. And Daniel in an Old Testament looking through the fog of the years, I believe was given an Old Testament glimpse of the cross and the answer to his prayer that it would bring. But then his prayer was answered also specifically. He had prayed that God would release them, take them back to the city, restore them to that place of blessing, bring them back under a right relationship with himself. Three years later, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 records, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. You can go home. Can you imagine? It was phenomenal. Why would he just turn out this labor force and all these slaves and and just say, you can go back? He even paid for the trip. You can go back. And as people packed their bags and they got their families together and they gathered their belongings, did they run back to God? Did they run all the way to Jerusalem? And so excited to be free and to be going back and to get back to God and back to the place of blessing. And did they see in the shadows an old man, too old to make the journey? wonder if he had tears coming down his face. Tears of joy and tears that were bittersweet, splashing through the ashes, dressed in sackcloth, on his face, praying for his people. What difference does a prayer of one person make? Ask Daniel. When you and I are faced with a mess, 
whether it's in our world or the world, whether it's in our nation or our home, whether it's in our ministry, our church, or our family, when we're faced with a mess, what difference can one person make? I think one person can make all the difference. If we draw a circle, we get on our face before God, and we plead under compulsion because of the problems that we see in our world and the promises and where we just reverse the thunder, centered down on God, confident in his covenant and in his character, with a contrite, broken heart, clear in what we're asking, and we just keep on praying until he answers our prayer. So my challenge to you this evening, what difference does the prayer of one person make? You're not going to know until you choose to be that one person. Would you pray? Would you pray? Would you pray like Daniel did until God delivers his people, takes us home? Pray with me, please. And just in the quietness of this moment, I want to go back and pick up just that thought about a covenant relationship with God. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if there is anyone here who doubts that you're in a covenant relationship with God, or at least you're not sure, maybe you know you're not, but tonight you want to be in a covenant relationship with God and you want to know that you know, then right now, by faith, Just pray this simple prayer after me. I'm going to pray slowly, so just pray in your heart. Put it into your own words. Dear God, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And therefore, I confess I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry. And I'm willing to turn away from my sin. If you'll help me. I believe Jesus died for me. And so right now, I'm asking you, dear God, would you forgive me of all of my sin? Cleanse me with his blood. I claim Jesus as my Savior, my atoning sacrifice. And I believe Jesus rose up from the dead to give to me eternal life. And I'm asking you right now, dear God, would you give me eternal life in his name? And I open up my heart and I invite Jesus to come live inside of me in the person of the Holy Spirit. I give him the authority in my life. From this day forward, I seek to live for him. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you, even now, for entering into that covenant with me so that I am yours and you are mine forever. If you prayed that prayer or something like it, if you need help with verses to know, just to strengthen your faith in that decision that you've made, if you go to my website, anngramlots.org, and you click on the link, just be sure of heaven, it'll give you verses, help you understand, 
And then you just take it by faith for the rest of us who know that we know. It's time to get serious with God. These are dangerous days. I believe we're living at the end of human history as we know it. And God has allowed you and me the privilege of knowing him at the end. And there's a reason for that. I believe there's a reason that we're here tonight. This is a divine appointment. I believe he's calling out men and women to stand in the gap for Wake County, for North Carolina, for our beloved nation of America. He's calling out men and women to stand in the gap for their own families and churches and neighbors. He's calling you tonight to pray like Daniel did. So, Father, I'm asking you, please, these are my words, but I ask that through those words that you would stir our hearts. Oh, God, would we feel the compulsion that comes from the Holy Spirit drawing us on our faces before you that we would pray like we've never prayed before, that we would rend our hearts and not our garments and stop just giving lip service, Lord, and get on our knees, believing that if we turn to you, you will turn to us. And the people who are saved from your judgment may not even know that we've been praying. That doesn't make any difference as long as you know (laughs) And our prayers move heaven and change this nation. So we look to you. We don't look to the political process. And we'll vote and we'll be there. And Lord, thank you for that privilege. But that's not the answer. We look to you and you alone. Save us for the glory of your name, we pray. And it's in the name of Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, the one who showed up in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's Lord, the one seated on the throne. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.